Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then bring them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. It's a bright, summery day. Yeah. It is very nice out today, but we're inside. Where we belong. (laughs) What does that mean? The sun will burn me up to a crisp. That's... okay, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Before we get started, I understand that we have a patron to thank. Yes, uh, we have a brand new patron of the night over at patreon.com slash podcast, And that patron's name is... Farceface. <laughs> Thanks, Farceface. Yes. for Thank you for your support. If you would like to... Be like Farceface and support the show. You can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep this show going. Help keep the show improving. Yes. Farceface has the unique honor of being our first alias patron. Yes. Or like pseudonym patron. Yes. Uh, but, uh, that doesn't mean we don't... Love them all the same. Exactly. I was gonna say appreciate their support, but... I love each and every one of our patrons. Alright, well... Like Chris, and Ted, Matt, William, and Ty. That's all of them. I love all of them. Okay. Okay. What are we watching today, Ben? Today, we are watching... Revolt of the Zombies Ah. from 1936. So Revolt of the Zombies comes to us from the Halperin Brothers. Okay. Um, We're pretty familiar with the Halperin Brothers. They've made some good stuff in the past. Yeah. um, The past project of theirs that's probably most relevant to this film is White Zombie, Mm. which had been produced by Edward Halperin and directed by his brother Victor Halperin as an independent film. They had gotten the financing and investments together for that movie themselves, and that movie had been done primarily as their tribute to the fading era of silent cinema. Uh, The brothers were not big fans of sound cinema, especially in 1932 when it was still fairly early into sound cinema's reign, and they had chosen the horror genre for White Zombie mostly to ensure the movie's profitability, because that was at the height of the first horror boom. But both brothers actually personally found the genre uh, distasteful. (laughs) Um, But we... So why are they back? Why are they back in this distasteful genre? Well, I I certainly have, you know, explanation for it, absolutely. Um, We quite liked White Zombie when we saw it, as I recall. Yeah, well, it's currently ranked number 25. On a list of about 66 movies. So, you know, in the... Top third. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you want to help refresh some of our listeners' memories about White Zombie? Sure. If you want further details about what I'm about to go into and kind of the history of Haiti, you should go listen to episode 32. In terms of what will probably be relevant to this, I guess, sequel 
to White Zombie, as well as um, what zombies are currently kind of known for, I'll be reiterating that stuff. Zombies, as far as they are concerned or depicted in 1936, is the Haitian zombie. Um, and these are created through voodoo. Now with voodoo, there are good priests, known as hungans and mambos, um, and then there are bad priests, known as bokor. And it's bokor who are known for creating zombies. And they do this by possibly trapping someone's soul in a jar, or cursing someone through a hex to put them in kind of a death-like state, um, or going so far as to poison someone and then you rise again as a zombie. These zombies are gaunt, they have grey skin, staring eyes, they are slow and clumsy, almost like they're in a dreamlike trance, um, and they speak kind of broken phrases, and they lack free will. They understand what you're saying to them, and they'll do your commands. They have no choice. Now there are documented cases of zombification, and in 1982, ethnobotanist Wade Davis found that there was a mixture of certain ingredients of plants and animals, specifically a neurotoxin from the pufferfish, um, is what you can use to essentially kill your victim through poison, um, and it's not quite fully killing them, because it's really just mimicking death. After which, you get the body and you poison the person more with a drug that essentially puts you in a trance, where you are vulnerable to suggestion and commands. So that's how you rise from the dead, you were really just in a coma. Mm -hmm. And this kind of all ties back to the idea that the zombie has a lack the Haitian zombie, has a lack of free will because of Haiti's history with slavery. Mm -hmm. So what makes zombification and Haitian voodoo really interesting is how voodoo, through its cultural practice, the way it unified people into having the shared cultural belief and practices, and also kind of being grafted onto Catholicism in order for it to survive slavery, is integral to understanding how Haiti got its independence. And I go into a lot of that detail in the White Zombie episode, and honestly it's why White Zombie, the film, is really interesting to me. White Zombie, the film, it didn't really talk about these issues, but they were kind of in there, you know? Um, our main characters had plantations. A lot of the zombies that we saw were black people who had been put under the spell by Bella Lugosi, who, like, talks about how he took the practice from, like, a Haitian priest. Uh, so it's all kind of there. Now, not to give the film any kind of credit for talking about it, because it doesn't, but it's really interesting to me how they incorporated that stuff into this film, which makes it feel like a very Haitian voodoo film. That history of Haiti and um, where voodoo comes from feels like it's baked into the film without it actually being baked into the film. Yeah, it's, it's not explicitly what the movie's about, but the way the film handles it helps the movie to feel authentic, I think is what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Now, what I kind of talked about in that episode is how voodoo is very unique depending on where it developed. So Haiti voodoo is completely different from 
American voodoo, kind of centered in New Orleans. Yes, exactly. Um, and White Zombie kind of conflates the two. Uh, for example, we see Bella Lugosi using voodoo dolls, which really only comes into practice in American voodoo. Mm-hmm. Haiti voodoo doesn't really have that. Yeah. And as much as I really like how White Zombie depicts voodoo, as you said, it feels very authentic to me, uh, to its setting. Mm-hmm. I, after kind of reading up about Revolt of the Zombies, I don't know how much credit to give to them, to the Halpern Brothers, that is, uh, because I believe that this film is set in Cambodia. Yes. And there's nothing about zombies with anything to do with Cambodia. Yeah, so... To sort of explain how we got here, yeah, um, White Zombie had been a big success, and we talked about that in that episode, and, you know, we talked about how White Zombie was sort of a move forward in atmosphere and tone in horror movies, and how we thought it was fairly effective, and it, it had been a big success. Both the Halpern brothers, up to that point in their career, had really only worked independently, or for Poverty Row Studios. But the success of White Zombie led to the brothers getting a contract with Paramount Pictures uh, to produce their next movie. The result of that contract was the film Supernatural, Mm. um, which was also a horror movie due to Paramount's stipulation that the Halperins repeat White Zombie's success. The thing about Supernatural, like, it was certainly interesting. We kind of sort of enjoyed ourselves, but it was very uneven, I think is fair to say. And it didn't replicate White Zombie's success, either. And so after Supernatural, the Halperins found themselves, once again, men without a studio. Uh, Paramount kind of dropped them (laughs) after Supernatural. It took them three years to recover from being dropped by Paramount Pictures. Uh, Their next film didn't come out until January of 1936, which was a drama entitled... I Conquer the Sea. Um, It was released entirely independently, uh, without even the support of a Poverty Row studio. Um, It was just the Halperins on their own, doing their own thing. Um, And while they managed to retain their cinematographer from White Zombie and Supernatural, Arthur Martinelli, the writer of those two films, Garnet Weston, had left uh, the sort of crew of the Halperins. Left Uh, the team. Yes, so... Uh, I Conquer the Sea was written by some new writers the Halperins found who were gentlemen who it could be said were on the waning down phase of their careers. Okay. The movie didn't exactly set the world on fire. I mean, I've never heard of it. Yeah. I doubt many people in 1936 had heard of it. Oh, no. Um, So, the Halperins reluctantly decided to return to the subject matter that had given them their greatest success, zombies. So their return to the genre this time around is really being motivated out of necessity. The idea that, you know, this is the only thing they ever seemed to achieve much with. Revolt of the Zombies was originally intended and promoted as a sequel to White Zombie. In September of 1935, uh, the trade papers announced the production as starring Bella Lugosi. But by November, Lugosi was out of the picture. Now, it's, it's hard to say why Lugosi dropped out. Um, we don't really know. 
Uh, I mean, sure, his character was dead at the end of White Zombie. Uh, but, but the movie's about zombies. Yeah. People come back from the dead all the time. Exactly. What does that matter? Um, it's tempting to say that maybe the Halperins couldn't afford Lugosi, but Lugosi was at the point in his career where he was more or less willing to take any paying job. Um, so it's really hard to say what happened here, other than that for the second time in a row, we have a sequel to a Lugosi film, minus Lugosi. Mm. Uh, by January of 1936, there was still no script for Revolt of the Zombies, and filming didn't start on the movie until March of 1936. Now, no writers are credited in the film itself. That's a good sign. Yes. Uh, but, reportedly, the script was the work of Victor Halperin himself, working alongside Howard Higgin and Rollo Lloyd, who were the writers of I Conquer the Sea. And uh, the scenario that they came up with is one that's primarily set in Cambodia in the ruins of Angkor. Does that have anything to do with zombies at all, Sarah? It really does not. Okay. I suppose at least Cambodia shares colonialism in in common with Haiti? Uh, not in the way that I expected to find. Okay. I mean, both deal with France. Yeah, France uh, colonized both of them. Yeah. At certain points. Uh, but you see, France didn't colonize Cambodia. It was a protectorate. Yeah, they were invited in. Yeah, Cambodia has a very long history. But in terms of what's relevant to this film and to what we're talking about, we're going to focus the history on the Khmer Empire, which was around 802 to 1431. And it's during this empire that Angkor Wat was built, which I think is what you meant when you said the ruins of Angkor. Well, my understanding is that Angkor was a large, like, metropolis, and Angkor Wat refers only to the, like, religious site, the temple that was at the center of it. Yes. Yes. Cambodia is a country tucked between Thailand and Vietnam in Southeast Asia. So this empire was wealthy, it developed art, architecture, and culture, and expanded Cambodia's borders through having vassals in nearby states and countries, and also just ruling over most of mainland Southeast Asia. Yeah, sure. Like you do when you're an empire. Yeah. The Khmer Empire capital was Angkor, where they built the largest religious monument in the world, Angkor Wat, to the Hindu god Vishnu. And Angkor Wat just means temple city, which means Angkor just means city. Good name for your capital. Yeah. Now, because White Zombie used voodoo, a religious practice to kind of center its film, did some research into the religious side of Cambodia. For sure. Vishnu, who this, this temple was dedicated to, is one of three gods in the trinity of divinity in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. With Brahma as the creator, Vishnu as the preserver, and Shiva as the destroyer. And together they create, maintain, and destroy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the cycle of life. Right. Now, Angkor Wat was built in the 12th century during King Surya Varman II. Uh, he reigned 1113 to 1150-ish. 
and that's when there was a period of unity within the empire. Once the king died, work on the temple just stopped, no one really wanted to continue it, um, so there were, are still parts of Angkor Wat that are unfinished, mainly decorative parts of the temple. Sure, the, sure, sure. You know. Yeah, the, the reliefs and stuff aren't, aren't finished in some spots. Yeah. Yeah. Towards the end of the 12th century, Angkor Wat became a temple for Buddhism instead of for worship to Vishnu. And this is probably because King Jayavarman Seventh. Uh, was Buddhist. Okay, sure. Jayavarman was kind of different from his predecessors, mainly in that he wasn't a tyrant. <laughs> okay, sure. He reigned 1181 to 1219, and he was very successful in his military campaigns. He took territory back and defeated the Champa years later, and he helped unify the empire like never before, you know, building hospitals, lots of construction, promoting architecture and other cultural projects. And that's kind of the high point of the Khmer Empire. Okay. It's kind of all downhill from here, unfortunately. Cambodia's history has a lot of push and pull between Hinduism and Buddhism. Sure, that makes sense. A lot of that push and pull happened after Jayavarman's uh, death. Okay. And this is kind of what led to the Khmer Empire declining by the 14th century, um, as religious changes go back and forth and power shifts in government and military power, things start to crumble. In Cambodia's case, it led to a period called the Dark Ages, which is always a good sign, hmm. um, between 1431 and 1863. So there was a lot of infighting between vassal states and revolts. And by the late uh, 17th century and into the 18th century, what was left of Cambodia was kind of being whittled away by the Siam, which is Thailand as we know it today, and Vietnam. And it's in this situation that encouraged Cambodian King Ang Duong to agree to become a protectorate of France in 1863. Right. So in effect, Cambodia came under French colonial rule uh, within what was known as the French Indochina. Yes. The Cambodian monarchy became more of a figurehead type of position, in France became in control of trade relations, the military, and foreign relations for Cambodia. Yeah, for sure. And this is how Cambodia differs from Haiti in terms of its relationship with France, because Haiti didn't really invite the French in, and it was terrible slavery times. In Cambodia, it's 1863, the French actually abolished slavery in Cambodia, but they weren't really interested in having Cambodia, besides the fact that there were rubber trees in the okay. country. They were really interested in Cambodia to use it as a position to kind of start to entrench upon Thailand and entrench upon Vietnam. Yeah, because Vietnam became part of French Indochina eventually too, right? They basically used Cambodia as like a place where they can... A staging ground. They used Cambodia as a staging ground. Yes establish their presence in Vietnam and also really fully develop Vietnam into a colony. There were some attempts to remove the monarchy, um, both from Cambodians and French military. Neither side really succeeded. But since France didn't really disrupt much of the life in Cambodia, 
there wasn't a lot of anti-French sentiment being hmm. developed. You know, they were pretty okay with this, except um, the fact that France was using them as a staging ground to take over Vietnam. Cambodia started this whole deal to solidify their borders, to not be part of Vietnam. So right. now they were like fearing that they'd get lumped in with Vietnam and also frustrated that the deal wasn't really going the way they wanted to. But that kind of frustration doesn't really lead to getting rid of this protectorate status until 1953. Like, did the Cambodians kick the French out? Yeah, um, the king at the time found a way to peacefully get rid of the French in huh. 1953. Interesting, because the Vietnamese definitely went with the more... A different route. Yes. It's interesting because um, when we watched White Zombie, uh, Haiti was still under U.S. occupation. And, you know, here now we're seeing Revolt of the Zombies uh, set in Cambodia under French occupation. So it's sort of interesting to hear the difference between the nature of the occupation of Cambodia and Haiti by France and the United States. Yeah. Because there wasn't a lot of similarities between... Haiti and Cambodia in terms of its political situation, things like that, um, that would lead to why they would choose Cambodia as the setting for this film. I started to look at what does voodoo have in common with Buddhism? Okay. They're both polytheistic. Sure. Otherwise, there's nothing there. Right. Now, in Hindu mythology, there is this type of ghost called a Vitala, which is a kind of spirit that can possess cadavers, uh, and can be found in what is known as charnel grounds, which is basically where people's bodies are left to decompose, usually near water, in Tibet it's kind of like a sky burial, so the body can be cleansed. Mm. When this spirit possesses the cadaver, the corpse stops decomposing and can be essentially used as a puppet by the spirit. Okay. So essentially, the person comes back to life. Uh, not necessarily by who they were in life, but by essentially a possession. Right, a possession of a dead body. Yeah. That's the closest thing to a zombie. Okay. I know that in the 1930s, there was a lot of um, cultural interest in Angkor, uh, because it was this giant metropolis, basically, that had been abandoned, you know, when the when the empire fell. And so it had that same kind of, like, to white people, culturally, it had that same kind of mysterious feel as, like, the pyramids or the, like, Aztec or Mayan ruins in South America um, of, like, these big stone edifices lost in the jungle somewhere. And so I feel like... If anything, probably the setting of this movie was chosen for that kind of pulp, mystery kind of feel. That lost city kind of feel. That's my guess, having not seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you're too far off the mark. Um, and depending on how they invoke religion, which religion they invoke in this film, like, will they still talk about voodoo? Will they talk about Hinduism or Buddhism? I, I have no idea. Yeah, we're going to see how much research they really did. Um, the cast of Revolt of the Zombies largely consists of silent-era has-beens and poverty-row nobodies. 
But there are a few names worth mentioning. Dean Jagger uh, appears in what undoubtedly was meant to be the Bela Lugosi role in this movie. At this point in his career, he was basically a nobody, um, but he would go on to become a respected character actor. He would win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his appearance in 12 O'Clock High in 1949, and would go on to appear in films like The Robe and White Christmas in the 1950s. So, he's a nobody now, but eventually he'll be a, uh, he'll be a that guy. <laughs> Another actor I'd like to point out is Roy Darcy, plays the role of General Markovia in this film. Uh, he had been a popular villain in the silent era of movies, uh, most notably as Crown Prince Mirko in Eric von Stroheim's The Merry Widow from 1925 a role which led to a string of flamboyant, over-the-top antagonist parts at MGM through the 20s and early 30s. However, as sound film progressed, Darcy's over-the-top acting style fell out of favor, and his career declined. Uh, so casting him in this movie falls into the Halperin's habit of casting fallen, silent-era movie stars wherever possible. Mm. A final performer in this film I wish to draw attention to is Teru Shimada. Uh, he's in a very minor role in this movie, but as a Japanese-American, uh, he is the only Asian actor in a film set in Cambodia. So I just wanted to draw some attention to that. Um, he appeared in over 70 roles in his long career from 1932 to 1975 and is perhaps best known to modern audiences as Mr. Ozato in the James Bond movie You Only Live Twice. Hmm. Filming for Revolt of the Zombies completed at the end of March 1936, but the release was held up by a lawsuit against the Halperins <laughs> from Amusement Securities a securities and loan company that had helped to finance White Zombie. They alleged in the lawsuit that due to their investment in White Zombie, they held the film rights to the word zombie, and that no one else but them could make a movie with the word zombie in the title or in the movie. Okay. Uh, they also warned that any theaters screening the film would also face lawsuits from them. So this all went to court. Uh, went through a few different layers of courts. Uh, but ultimately, the courts ruled that the Halperins could release Revolt of the Zombies, and that no one had the film rights to the word zombie, but that the Halperins did have to stop promoting Revolt of the Zombies as a white zombie sequel. Mm -hmm. And in this manner, they ruled in Amusement Security's favor... And the Halperins were ordered to pay $11,500 in damages and fees to Amusement Securities because they had advertised Revolt as a sequel to this earlier film. Uh, so after paying out that money, the Halperins then released Revolt of the Zombies on June 4th, 1936. How was the reception? It um, didn't go so well. I don't know if they made that $11,000 back. That really sucks. Yeah. Don't know how many people saw this movie. Well, there's going to be at least two more 
Yes. How are we watching it? Uh, it is in the public domain. That's a real surprise. That was sarcasm. So it's on our YouTube playlist? It sure is, Sarah. You can find that YouTube playlist and join the small club of people who have seen Revolt of the Zombies if you go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Till then, we are going to watch the film and you will hear a brief musical interlude in the meantime. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Revolt of the Zombies from 1936. It was a movie. It was a thing that happened on a screen. For a time, it had a beginning and a middle and an end in the sense that it started and then it was happening and then it stopped. Yeah. We didn't like this movie. No, it's not good. Don't become one of the people who have seen this movie. Yeah, if you are a fan of zombie movies... This is not a zombie movie. Yeah, it definitely isn't. They keep calling zombies robots. Well, they also keep calling the things in this movie zombies, which also isn't accurate either. Yeah. Um, They're automatons, you see. Hypnotized... Zombies, you say? Yes, robots, even. Yeah. Yeah. Built Angkor Wat. Yes. No one else could have possibly done this. Must have been zombies. Must have been zombies who built Angkor Wat. I mean, they did say they were controlled by the king. Listen, if you're a fan of zombie movies and you were like, oh, I'll go back and watch the first zombie movie, White Zombie. So I can see where the like zombie subgenre started. And you watch that and you were like, wow, that was super kind of interesting because it's like not zombies as we think of them nowadays. I wonder what else this same team has done. And you're like, ah, revolt of the zombies. Cool. Don't. 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 Walk away. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Collect the $200 and then hit skip on this movie. Sure. So allow me to give a plot summary. Of this movie, which, um... It's convoluted as fuck. Yeah, but also nothing happens in it at the so same time. So much does not happen. Yeah. So, we begin <laughs> on the Franco-Austrian front of World War One, And I just have to immediately point out there was no Franco-Austrian front of World War One. That's like saying the Canadian-Mexican border. It makes no sense. But that's where we are. And there's a sort of a, a group of 
French-Cambodian soldiers, because colonialism, and they're fighting in the war, and they have a Cambodian priest of Shiva? I got, eventually, once the movie was over, it seemed like the religion we were dealing with here was Hinduism, and specifically worship of Shiva. Was, that was the only god mentioned by name, anyways. I have no idea. Anyways. These statues that they had looked like Vishnu. Anyways, this Cambodian priest is from Angkor and manages to command legions of troops through mental telepathy, basically, against the enemy. Really, like, it's just these people are hypnotized and under mind control. They'll continue, you know, marching forward even if they've been shot and so on. Even though that seems rad... <laughs> uh, for some reason, the French decide to not do this anymore because, like, higher-up generals in the Allied command complain that this power could mean the, quote, end of the white race, unquote, I guess if, like, the Cambodian priest ever turned his men against the French. So, they sentence the priest to life imprisonment. But... Recognizing that mental control of hypnotized slaves is rad, a contingent of French officers agree to go on an expedition to Angkor after the war to discover the secret of mind control. And again, they keep using the word zombie in this movie. They also use the word robot. And there's two things I need to point out about that. One is that what we see in this movie are neither zombies nor robots. Like, not even by the Haitian voodoo definition. Like, there's no voodoo, there's no anything. They're just hypnotized with telepathy. It's just mind control. Two, these scenes are set in World War I. The word zombie won't enter the vocabulary until 1924. The word robot will not enter the English vocabulary until 1923 and wasn't coined at all until 1920. Yeah. Anyways. So, meanwhile, um... There's this character named General Mazovia, who looks like Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon. He is evil. He has a goatee, you see. An eyeliner. Right. And he's clearly he, the good guy. Right. So General Mazovia, the evil one, uh, the Prince of Darkness himself, oh, um, he kills Mephisto, if you will. Right. He uh, he kills the priest they locked up and takes like half the secret to making zombies, quote-unquote. Then we flash forward to after the war and the expedition, and um, the main character that we're dealing with amongst a bunch of them is a translator named Armand Luke. And there's also his friend, Clifford Grayson, and there's also Claire Duval, who is the daughter of the expedition leader. That's why she's here. And Armand's whole deal is that he's, like, very... Um, anxiety-ridden and, you know, stutters and doesn't speak up and doesn't go for the things he wants and is kind of very timid. And his friend Clifford Grayson has this uh, motto about uh, being ruthless and uh, picking an objective and driving straight at it that gets repeated a lot. Several times. In this movie. And he thinks Armand should be more like him. Now, Armand is in love with Claire, but Claire is in love with Clifford. So Claire gets engaged to Armand so that Clifford will become jealous, because otherwise there's no way that Clifford would have, like, ever noticed her, apparently. So then once he's jealous enough to want Claire for himself, Claire calls off the marriage with Armand so she can be with Clifford. 
Meanwhile, Armand discovers the secret of mind control in Angkor, in the temple, and he uses it to, you know, start taking command over people. Uh, and every time he <laughs> takes control of people through mental telepathy, we get, like, a static frame of Bela Lugosi's glowing eyes from White Zombie just overlaid uh, atop the, the film. And a terrible gong sound. Yeah, it turns out the secret of zombie mind control is uh, the third eye of Shiva. Don't think about that too hard. So, um, Mazovia, who came along on the expedition, uh, he confronts Armand uh, to ally with him for the secret of mind control. Um, but Armand just has one of his zombies, quote-unquote, kill Mazovia, which renders his entire character completely pointless. Uh, after that, Armand sort of takes over everyone through mind control. He takes over the expedition, the expedition leaders, uh, like the Cambodians they have working for them on the expedition, the Cambodian army, it seems, kind of, implied. Sort of. A bunch of Cambodian guys in uniforms with guns. That He takes over a bunch of people. Mostly this is represented by showing us Bela Lugosi's eyes um, overlaid atop like a bunch of stock footage of just people in Cambodia. So after he's taking control of everyone, um, he's, he's got everyone under his mind control except Claire. Uh, because he could never do that to her. So Armand forces Claire to marry him under the promise that he will let Clifford go free. After the wedding, Claire tells Armand that she will never love him. Armand asks if she would love him if he undid his mind control. She says yes, so he does, and the so-called zombies then revolt and kill Armand. The end. Yep. It's a 65-minute-long movie. Ugh. The revolt of the zombies is maybe the last five minutes, if I'm being really generous. And I think the mind control doesn't start until, like, with 25 minutes left in the film. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the whole plot of the movie up to that is about trying to find the secret of mind control. So it's not like it's totally out of nowhere. But this is mostly like, um... Love triangle. Yeah, it's definitely not horror. That's yeah, for sure. Totally. It's not a horror movie. There's nothing about this movie that's trying to be scary or spooky or anything. It's just, like, you could maybe call it an adventure movie because it's about, like, an expedition into the jungle to find the secret lost blah 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 of blah blah blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it kind of fits under adventure movie, except that not enough exciting things actually happen to it. Oddly enough, what it mostly is is just kind of like a character drama with some supernatural stuff sprinkled on top. Like, most of this movie is just people having conversations about what their, like, personalities or principles or beliefs are to each other, and, like, explaining their own character arcs to other people in the movie. Like, the big deal is just that Armand learns to be ruthless and then takes that out on the people who taught him to be ruthless, and that's bad because reasons... But when they were ruthless, it was fine because reasons. Yeah, it, it's not a good movie. It's, it's like... It came close to being like, being a quote-unquote man and being ruthless. And right. just going for what you want is bad. Like, it almost got there. Except they were like, yeah, you remember how you taught me and told me to be ruthless like you? Well, now I am. And they're like, oh... You seem better this way. Yeah, I mean, it's... Except for the mind control, 
I like you more this way. Claire and Clifford are unlikable, even though they're supposed to be like our main romantic couple. Clifford doesn't do anything in this movie. He's just there to kind of service the love triangle. He's not the hero. He's not anything. Um, But when they're being all ruthless and stuff, they're super unlikable. But I get the sense that they're not supposed to be. And then, like, when Armand gets that way, he has a conversation with, like, a mentor character who says, like, yeah, you're, you're like a changed man. You're like someone who found himself. You're much better this way. And the only real moral conclusion the movie draws is that being ruthless and going after your objective without sentimentality and just driving straight at it and all that sort of stuff is good. So long as, like, you follow, like, standard social morality and laws. And once you've kind of broken those, then it's bad. Like, I think the mentor says something along the lines of, like, yeah, it's good to really go in, but don't go too far. Yeah, and there's also, like, a conversation about, like, how when you've gone against what you know in your heart is right, that's wrong. Like, most of this movie is just people sort of saying pat philosophies back and forth to one another. I mean, I'll give the movie kind of at least credit for, you know, wanting to have characters who represent different ideas and concepts and playing that out in a drama. It's just that there's not enough of anything around any of them to make any of it interesting. None of the acting's good. The dialogue's really bad. All the characters are unlikable. The whole thing of them being an anchor is represented by everybody standing in front of an obvious screen with very obvious rear projection of stock footage the whole time, um, including... <laughs> like, people just move in two dimensions in front of this. Like, you never see people moving into or out of the background because it's always on a screen. But there is one shot where they had, you know, the, the, the camera taking the back plate for the reprojection was tracking back so that they could make it look like someone was walking forward. So it's just the actor standing on spot... <laughs> Sort of lifting his legs up and down and swinging his arms but as the camera tracks behind him. They're supposed to be in water, like they're going. Yeah, they're walking a through stream. a river. Yeah, and so the poor Foley guys are just like taking a glass of water and splashing yeah. it around the microphone, and it's so bad. And then he st- gets out of the water and he's totally it's dry. Dry as a motherfucking bone. If you're going to watch this movie. That's the one sequence. Just fast forward. It is a very boring sequence that lasts far too long. But it's so funny. (laughs) Boring and lasts too long is most of the scenes in this movie. There's so many scenes that could be so much shorter. I mean, this is a film that's only 65 minutes long. And if you did some judicious editing to get the pacing to not be terrible, it would probably be like a half hour. Yeah. Like just nothing happens in it. I mean, it's called Revolt of the Zombies, and there's barely a revolt, and there aren't any zombies. They're just Cambodians under mind control. And it's not even like the revolt is supposed to be the big thing that we're afraid of at the end of the movie. Like in, um, what was the movie where we were supposed to be afraid of the oppressed people rising up? It's like Black Moon. Black Moon. Yeah, so in Black Moon, we're supposed to be afraid of those possessed people at the end. But in this movie, we're like, we're not. Like, they're rising up against the villain. And they don't even kill any of the other white people. It's not like, oh, now that they're not under mind control, they're totally out of control. They're berserk. It's a threat to everyone. No. They storm the palace, shoot Armand, the end. Everything's fine. So, there's nothing here. I get it. I get what 
what they were maybe kind of interested in, in terms of the story they were telling. It's just not a good story or a good movie, and it's definitely not a horror movie. No. It's bad. We've had bad movies Mm -hmm. on the list. Yeah. Black Moon's a great example. Right. Where this is a bad movie, but it has some production value. Sure. Has some, like, talented people in some aspect in some of these roles of, like, the film crew or on screen. Mm. On a pure production quality level, this is probably better than Condemned to Live or House of Mystery. Because this movie at least has, like, I can tell that someone making this movie had some ideas at some point in their life. You know, it's just by the time it got to this point in their life, they barely had any money to make those ideas a reality or hire enough actors to do it. Like, this is a movie that I think if you had a good cast in it and a lot of money behind it could be potentially interesting. I feel like you would have to rewrite the whole script. And honestly, this is not meant to be a dig at the Halpern Brothers. Mm. But we know that they really don't like horror. No. But they think that their only source of success is with the idea of zombies. Mm -hmm. So they're like, let's make a movie about zombies, but not have it be horror. How do we do that? We make this movie. Yeah. How do you make a movie about zombies isn't horror? You make it not about zombies. Yeah. Like, this this is just a period love triangle character drama that happened, where one of the characters happens to have mental telepathy as a superpower. Like, all I'm saying, though, is this movie, if it had good production value, would probably be on a level with Black Moon. Okay. Right? I would agree with that. It just doesn't have any of that money, so it it goes down several notches that way. But, like, it's not, you know, complete incompetence like you get with House of Mystery. That's that's all I'm trying to say. Sure, sure. It is edited in a really weird way, where... I don't know if you felt this, but, like, you know, it's an hour long and nothing happens. But when we cut from one thing to another, I feel like I've missed half the plot. Oh, yeah. Like, they keep cutting, and when they cut to the next scene, you're like, wait, what? Because all of a sudden the status quo has changed dramatically and a ton of things have happened off screen that we didn't see that people will reference in dialogue as having happened. It's as if you took a long movie, like a two-hour movie or a three-hour movie, and you cut all the scenes with the plot out of them and just left the like character development scenes behind, that's kind of what this movie feels like. It's really weird. Yeah. And disorienting. Yeah. So it's not going on the list, right? Because it's not horror? It is definitely not horror. It is definitely not going on the list. So anything else you want to say about Revolt of the Zombies um, before we kind of lay it to its eternal rest, as it were? It's racist. I mean, yes. That is also true. There's a dude in straight-up yellow face. There's a lot of dudes in straight-up yellow face. Um, the one actual Asian actor, uh, Tiru Shimada, plays Armand Luke's um, servant. Yeah. And he's the first person he experiments on to see if he got the zombie thing right. And this character is so complacent and docile and uh, obedient already that I said to Sarah, like, how do you notice... Whether he's a zombie or not. I mean, when someone's so complacent that you can say, like, hey, come over here. 
I'm going to experiment on you to see if you will become a zombie. And that person just walks over and sits down without saying a word and just patiently waits for you to t take over their brain. Like, how is... How can you tell the experiment was a success or not? Yeah. Also, hey, the one person of color in this movie, yeah. we're going to experiment on them. Yeah. To be fair, once the mind control is over, he's the guy who leads the revolution. Yeah, he's like, fuck those guys. Yeah. We're free. Let's yeah. fuck them up. Yeah. Okay, um, well, if you do want to take a look at the list, even though this isn't going on it, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, suggestions, rants, <coughs> anything of the sort. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. I knew we were in trouble with this movie once it started with carnival music over the credits. Yeah, that, that was weird. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and... Google Play. If you listen to the show on any of those services, please leave us a rating and or a review. Stuff like that really helps the show by increasing its visibility because of algorithms or something. Um, another way that you can help the show is by telling a friend about it, whether that's in the real world or whether that's in the virtual world of social media, sharing and reblogging and all those things. Great way to help the show. Another fantastic way to support the program is by joining our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at $5 and $10 levels get access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes and monthly horror short stories. And my eternal love. Yes, that has been established in canon. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we're watching the final film that we are going to see from director Todd Browning, uh, who's had some ups and downs on the list over the years. It is 1936's The Devil Doll. <laughs> Excellent. First appearance of Chucky. Mm, kind of? All right. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.